Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This week's special episode features Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow and City Journal Contributing Editor Jim Meggs interviewing Edward Glazer, Professor of Economics at Harvard and also an MI Senior Fellow and CJ Contributing Editor. They discuss the housing crisis and how to fix it. We hope you enjoy. Jim, you and I are together again in the same room, face-to-face, recording a podcast for the first time in more than two and a half years. And I must say, you have not aged one bit. It's dark in here, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to be working face-to-face again. You could say we're housed in the same place. And housing is exactly what we're going to talk about. Fixing the housing affordability crisis with Harvard University economics professor Ed Glazer. Ed is the author of too many books to note, (laughs) but his most recent was released during the pandemic. It's called Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Now our interview. Ed Glazer, welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Oh, it's great to be back with you. It seems that as much as any crisis facing us today, housing is really tough to fix. Uh, Can you first give us an overview of the latest challenges facing the housing market in big cities like New York, where we are right now, and beyond? I think the biggest shock over the past five years has been the extent to which the housing comeback has hit cities like Dallas and Atlanta, that it sat the last one out. So for me, it's the nationalization of what had once been a coastal crisis. But in fact, the whole COVID era has been a spectacular era for housing price increases, right? Partially, we understand this as as frictions in selling houses, so supply has not caught up. Partially, it reflects just demand to you know, get cozy inside your own, your own space and increased working from home means you want a home that's worthy of working in. And partially, of course, it reflects the longer term dysfunction of our housing markets in failing to produce enough supply in the most productive parts of America to meet demand. But in just in the past few months, we've had this huge increase or comparatively huge increase in, in mortgage rates. Do you think that that will change everything quickly? I don't think it'll change things quickly, but it could compound and cause particularly sharp changes in places like Phoenix that, in fact, we're still building. So Phoenix to me today looks a lot like Phoenix did in 2006 and 2007. So I would expect in places like that are the areas where you're going to see the fastest adjustment to the changes in interest rates. 2006, 2007, the beginnings of the subprime crisis. Indeed. What are some of the common obstacles to building enough housing? There are places where geography actually matters. So unquestionably, the Greater San Francisco has a lot of water in the way. It has a lot of hills in the way. These are all things that make make it difficult to build. The island of Manhattan is intrinsically constrained. And those watery barriers, which served so well in the early 19th century to enable access to the world via clipper ship, those watery barriers are now you know, a, a difficulty, are now a challenge for building. But the view that I have come to over the past 20 years of working on this topic is this is by and large you know, a self-created problem. We have, have shot ourselves in the foot by allowing localities to overregulate themselves, to make it far too difficult to build new housing, which means that ordinary people find it far too difficult to buy housing that is affordable for them. We're in New York City which probably has had the most pro-tenant regulatory regime, going back really to World War II. 
and yet it's one of the hardest places in the country to get an apartment. What's the connection there? <laughs> it's a great irony, right, that the that the blue states that allegedly care so much about affordable housing do such a bad job of actually providing it, whereas red states like Texas have done a great job of providing affordable housing, primarily because they unleash the developers, primarily because they make it easier to build. Some economists argue that over the long term, rent control does great harm to cities. Why? In part because rent control freezes housing markets. And so you have people you know, who, if they were owned a home, you know, they've turned 70, their you know, kids are out of the house, they would sell it and move to a smaller place. But if it's a rent-controlled three-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, they can't sell it. They can't reallocate it. They're stuck with it, um, in part because who wants to build in a world in which you know, rent control is either active or even if we have carve-outs for new construction – you've got to be a little worried if you're a developer that they may slap rent control on you in the future. And, and housing is a very long-lived asset. And yet we're seeing that growing numbers of towns, cities, and counties right now are enacting new forms of rent control to rein in the rapidly rising costs. At a time of soaring prices, that sounds like a good idea to many people. You're clearly against it. So what is wrong with putting a cap on rental costs, even when it helps people in the short term? If you want to help people with housing costs in the short term, we have a very clear mechanism for doing so. It is called the housing voucher. It has been part of public policy for 50 years. The beauty of it is it doesn't muck up the market. It just puts a little extra demand in it so that will in a – if done sufficiently much, will actually push housing prices up further. But if done to a modest degree, will have very little impact on the, on the overall market. It can be targeted towards poorer people. Whereas price controls, rent controls, right, there are many things that are wrong about, about prices. Let's just go for, through a few of them. One of which is it turns off the incentives to build. Secondly, it freezes housing markets. Third, landlords have no incentive to maintain the properties. And throughout your career, you've been a passionate advocate for cities. Do you still believe that the health and vitality of cities is vital to the future of all of us? Oh, absolutely. I think humanity's greatest hits have been powered by urban connections since Socrates and Plato bickered on an Athenian street corner. I think that the miracles of cities are, you know, resound throughout history and they're still happening today. They're places where, you know, People get smart by being around other smart people. They're places where people come to America and find opportunity. Um, they serve all these functions. They also have downsides, of course, and you know they are associated with traffic congestion. They're associated with high housing costs. They're associated with crime. And of course, most terribly, they are associated with the spread of pandemic with contagious disease. You talk about cities as being areas where disease can be easily transmitted. And certainly early in COVID, it seemed like the cities were the hotspots, they were the problem areas. But how did it pan out over time? What did you discover in research in your book? Cities are associated with pandemic for two reasons. One of which is they're the ports of entry into a country for people, for ideas, for goods, and for viruses and bacteria. COVID entered into New York, Atlanta, Boston, Seattle, right? Yeah. These were the ports of entry. This is where, as of April 2020, this is where the disease hit. As you'll remember, as I'm sure all of your, your uh, listeners remember, by November, the hot story was the Dakotas, right? So, you know, it's, a, it's an airborne pandemic. When we look at the long-term pattern across metropolitan areas, for me, the variable that leaves out is education. That, in fact, the educated metropolitan areas ended up having death rates that were less than half 
that of the least edu- educated metropolitan areas. And a lot of that reflects the way that education played out with mobility and working from home. Uh, at the early days of the pandemic in, in you know, May 2020, 68.9% of Americans with advanced degrees were working from home and 5% of high school dropouts were working from home. That's worth repeating. So two-thirds of Americans two th- with advanced degrees, degrees were working from home and one in 20 Americans who were high school dropouts were working from home. So the COVID spread much more rapidly among people with less education and jobs they had to go to. Absolutely. If you worked in financial services, you were working from home, right? If you were a management consultant, if you were a lawyer, you were working from home, you were, you were doing it electronically. If you happened to be a, a nurse in a hospital, if you happened to be a, a checkout person in a, in a pharmacy, right? You were one an essential worker and you can't do that job uh, remotely. And so they were going in and they were getting sick and many of them were dying. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Let's move on to solutions. Um, clearly, you feel that, that there have been too many impediments to the free market. But if we simply let the free market rip in cities and suburbs without any kinds of constraints at all, doesn't that invite greater inequality and also unattractive living environments? So first of all, we can debate whether or not you would want a completely free market in building new homes or not. But that's that's not uh, that's not on the agenda. That's not a, that's not a remote possibility in any of the metropolitan areas where I'm worried about. One of the beauties of being an academic, I only need to wade into policy areas which are exactly the ones which I actually feel like I know something about and that I like. And one of the reasons why I really like this this policy area is it's both libertarian and progressive. Deregulating housing is not something I believe that will promote uh, inequality at all. I think, in fact, relative to where we currently are, we're making we're going to be making homes more affordable for lower income people. And so, this is something that both moves away from regulation and also moves towards a more egalitarian, fairer America. Uh, when it comes to sort of you know entrepreneurship, right? It is an outrage in this country, and it's an out should be an outrage to progressives that we regulate the entrepreneurship of the rich so much more lightly than we regulate the entrepreneurship of the poor. If you want to start your internet phenomenon in your Ivy League dormitory room, you can have basically a billion users before there's any regulator who's noted that you, that you exist. If you want to go five blocks away and start your you know, grocery store that sells milk products, you've got 15 permits to get through, and it's, and it's a nightmare. And because you know, educated elite people tend to be innovators in cyberspace, they're not bearing the brunt of this. Whereas ordinary people, and it's the same phenomenon as not being able to work from home, ordinary people who are not naturally writing code for the, for the internet are, you know, their entrepreneurship is live and it's, and it's real and it's valuable, but it's also highly regulated. And so I want to push back on the notion that, in fact, you know, this is, this is anything that isn't progressive in terms of, in terms of this. Now, whether or not in terms of your, your point about the beauty of the area, uh, sure, maybe we want a little bit around the edges, but let's talk about where that is because it's not like I'm so convinced that governments are great arbiters of what is beauty in, in the world. So uh, let's, let's, let's be sure we know what we're doing on, that, on this. We all know about NIMBY, not in my backyard, but now we're also seeing a YIMBY movement, yes, in my backyard. And what's interesting about it is that it's not just conservatives and libertarians saying, oh, you know, strip away the regulations and build more houses. There's a lot of progressives or center, you know, centrist liberals who are also getting on board with this, especially on the West Coast where housing is such an acute problem. Could this be an issue that becomes something of a bipartisan cause? 
Um, I would love that. Uh, I'm not sure it's it's about to happen, but you certainly think there should be common ground between progressives on the left and at least those people on the right who tend to be more libertarian. Um, the the Yimby movement is still small, um, but whether or not this will morph into a large national thing, I'm not at all sure. I think there is some science of movement. News reports this week suggesting that uh, Democratic Mayor Eric Adams of New York now wants to reverse uh, New York's expensive and time-consuming environmental reviews for many rezonings. The Perhaps that's an indication that there's some movement here. That would be fabulous if you can if you can pull that off. That's uh, there surely will be lawsuits. It'll surely will be a difficult thing to get through. But this makes an important point, which is that th- there are two primary ideologies, you know, that are used to support nimbyism, the, the opposition to to new building. One of which is historic preservation, which we can talk about later if you want. But the other of which is environmentalism. Um, very rarely, however, are land use you know, regulations, land use restrictions, particularly in a place like New York or coastal California, actually good environmentalism. So, in fact, if you cared about greening the planet, you really would want New York to build up as much as possible, right? You really want the area to grow in a place where people actually don't drive 50 miles a day, where they live in modestly sized apartments, where, you know, it's not that they're super green, but in fact, it's it's a relatively compact lifestyle. And just having people together just saves a lot in terms of energy. This reminds me of... of our show, Jim, with Gernot Wagner, who is a, quite a well-known climate economist, and uh, by almost every measure, I think his politics are left. And we asked him, we said, Gernot, what's the biggest thing we could do to lower carbon emissions? And his answer was, build more apartments in cities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you get outside of, of central cities, or the classic dense cities. So many of these regulations are single family zoning and and all kinds of ways to prevent the building of that. I, I live next door to a three-story apartment house that probably has 40 units in it and parking underneath. And it's right above a train station that can get you right into New York City. That used to be three single family homes that were kind of decrepit. That's a good kind of development. Absolutely. And and yet that's exactly the kind of development that supposed environmentalists are fighting in lots of the country. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's just completely backwards. You want to you want to build up wherever you're building. Apart from building more houses, are there other things that can be done? So mostly it's about reducing the, the barriers to building. Probably there's smart things that can be done in terms of transportation policy that complements building. Getting around makes it easier to get to places that are more more affordable. The low-hanging fruit in public transportation is always the bus, right? There's an old joke that 40 years of transportation economics at Harvard can be boiled down to four words, bus good, train bad. Uh, and that's, that's really almost entirely about cost, but it's also about flexibility. It's about in a world that's uncertain, buses can be rerouted. We can take dedicated lanes that work for buses and then put other vehicles on them if we want. And the idea with buses that really makes them very functional is with dedicated lanes, right? So you really want buses that are, heck, you can run them through a tunnel if you want, and they're still going to be a lot cheaper than a train is. There's no reason why, you know, we can't have an entirely electric bus fleet in the U.S. The one thing that's sort of outrageous in Congress that we have that blocks that is the various Buy American provisions of things that are supported by the Department of Transportation, where, you know, we have these these local 
bus companies building buses in the U.S. that are incomparably more costly than buying it from Kia, buy it from Hyundai, where, you know, they have a, they, at least a couple of years ago, they had a perfectly nice looking $350,000 electric bus that, you know, that would seems like you want to source these things globally if you actually want to work quickly to getting low cost transportation that can green the, green the environment. Clearly, affordable public transportation should be considered when building new housing in cities. What else? The other thing that I would I would do in terms of housing affordability is I would be smarter in terms of both what public housing units we have and housing vouchers. And I would do much more in terms of targeting housing vouchers towards particularly families with young children because where neighborhood really matters are for kids at formative stages. And so you really want to sort of enable uh, families with young kids to move to better neighborhoods. And uh, with public housing, I think having more term limits makes sense. I think it's much healthier to think about public housing as being a two to three year thing that you can take advantage of if you've gotten into trouble rather than something that you're going to live in for the next 50 years of your life. I used to be kind of a skeptic that housing issues drove homelessness, but but I just saw a a statistic uh, in the paper yesterday that it was announced that over 100,000 New York City school students were homeless at some at least some point during the school year that's just a devastating number how close is the connection between expensive housing or lack of housing and and homelessness going back 30 years there have been two primary schools of thought that have battled it out and there's truth to both of them one of which emphasized mental illness and the deinstitutionalization of the, the mentally troubled in the 1970s is surely one of the contributing factors to the rise of homelessness in the 1980s. I don't think I don't think anyone disputes that. There is a secondary view, which is particularly associated with the work of Dan O'Flaherty, Brennan O'Flaherty at Columbia, and also with the work of Quigley and Raphael that emphasizes housing aspects, and they emphasize slightly different aspects. So. O'Flaherty, who has a very New York-centered view, really is focused on uh, showing the impact of of eliminating the single-room occupancy hotels. So this is a different form of regulation, but they had these hotels that, you know, many of us thought of being unattractive, but they were cheap and they provided space for people who were on the margins of society. And well-meaning housing regulators decided we didn't want these unattractive things. We got rid of them and people ended up being on the street instead of being able to buy this sort of cheap space. Or, or rent by the week in a lot of cases. Rent by the week, absolutely. Quigley and Raphael, by contrast, who are California-based, they look at the link between housing regulations and housing prices and homelessness, particularly in California, and they document it as well. Can technology help? Recently, we heard from Rana Faruhar, who's a economics correspondent with the Financial Times. And in that episode, she talked about the promise of 3D printing that can build houses much more cheaply than traditional methods. Can this play a role? Absolutely, it can play a role. I, I don't know 3D printing per se, but mass-produced housing is just a lot cheaper, and you can prefab skyscrapers now. One of the reasons I'm convinced that housing, that the straight building side of housing hasn't gotten cheaper, and remember, in most industries, it gets cheaper to do stuff over time, right? Housing is kind of funny in that, in fact, it has not gotten cheaper to build stuff. In fact, by most measures, productivity has gone down in the housing construction side. I am fairly convinced that this is actually a byproduct of regulation that is reflects the fact that when you have more and more rules, 
it makes it harder and harder to do things that are mass produced in one location and you end up doing a bespoke product that is able to fit into this community's particular rules around this one particular lot. And so all of those advantages of sort of just unleashing the market and saying, figure out how to build it fast and cheap, right? That becomes impossible if it's saying, oh, no, no, no. You've got to go through your seven years of review and we've got to talk about exactly what your plans are and we want to know, you know, what your window treatments are going to be before we allow anything. But there are some rules, like, for instance, of in Florida with, with hurricane codes, building codes that are very important, save lives, right? Absolutely. The hurricane stuff is tricky. We, we have, you know, we clearly almost in some cases through the way we work flood insurance almost subsidized you to locate in these floodplains, which is really crazy. So we really do want to think a little bit about this. It's also, you know, a related issue is what L.A. regulation or California regulation does, you know, more generally to the issue of the, the wildfires. Putting lots of people next to nature can often be a bad idea. And so, in fact, by limiting the growth in central L.A. and by pushing it out to the the exurbs, we may well have made the wildfire problem worse. You just described my next article in City Journal, actually. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I've always I've been very interested in the way a lot of those people who live in out in the in the scrublands or in the foothills of the Sierras were forced there by lack of housing to the cities and enticed there through some subtle subsidies. Final question for me. We are facing yet another turning point for the housing market and the economy in general with with rising prices and rising interest rates and fears of a recession down the road. Are you hopeful that we can get some home truths about housing that perhaps have not been appreciated until now? So my big worry about the the cycle is that whenever prices go up, we just start getting some momentum on doing something about this. And then we get the crash and then everyone says, why are we worried about this? The whole problem is the prices are too low, not the problem that prices are too high. So this is exactly sort of what I felt like I went through in the 2004 to 2009 period. I'm a little worried that we're going to replay this this again. You know, Ed, most of our guests, when we ask them, are you hopeful? They go, yeah, sure. Not not this guy. (laughs) Well, hold on. You asked me a short-term question about housing markets and housing reform. Let me me give a broader broader statement, which is, uh, I think, again, where I started on this, that like, if you're asking about cities more generally, even about America, the the long-run track record of urban creativity in cities has been tremendous. I continue to be enormously hopeful about the things that I see around me every day in terms of young people in cities and the things that they're working at. That makes me hopeful about cities. And even despite the remarkably dysfunctional things about American politics right now, I even have some hope for the, for the larger political arena just because I trust in the young. You know, they say economics is the dismal science, Ed, but you're showing that it can have a sunny side <laughs> as well. Uh, thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you again for having me on. Ed Glazer speaking with us face-to-face. Next, our recommendation. Jim, you have something for us. Last week, I think I recommended a video. Do you have a book? Yes. I'm reading the book, How the World Really Works, by the great Canadian thinker Vaclav Smil, who himself has written dozens of books about energy and the environment. It sounds like a weighty tome. It's not weighty. It's very readable. But if you're someone who was hoping that a lot of the issues we're facing in terms of climate and the environment were going to be solved quickly, you know, we're going to get to zero carbon by 2040 or something, it's kind of depressing. Or I would say it's realistic. He does a great job of showing some of the challenges in changing the way we, we 
produce, distribute, and use energy in, in our lives, and some of the challenges of the things we think we're going to replace it with, like wind and solar. Is, re, listeners of this podcast know that I'm a skeptic that we can run our power grid totally on wind and solar. They're, they can be an important part. Nor can we replace all our cars with electric cars in the short term. Um, name of the book again? How the World Really Works. Next, our conversation. Great to have Ed Glazer back with us again to talk about something that for many people I think seems almost hopeless, which is the housing crisis. And he did give us, give us some sobering thoughts, but also some glimmers of light. I saw this as a mostly optimistic uh, talk because what Ed's work shows is that most of our problems in this space are self-inflicted. It's not that difficult to build houses, but it is difficult to navigate these incredibly complex, arcane zoning rules in many areas. One of the things that he said that really struck me is that we have a lot more rules to prevent small home builders and people who are further down on the economic ladder from doing things in our economy than big companies. Right now, we're in Manhattan famous for its tall skyscrapers. But I spent a good part of this week in Brooklyn and Queens, which are also New York City boroughs, but most of the housing stock is two- and three-story dwellings. And I was thinking, couldn't we have an explosion of micro-developers who would add an extra floor under their house, or maybe they convert the garage into a living space. This could be done all over this city. It would make a huge difference in reducing the soaring costs of rents and also making it more affordable for people to buy homes in multiple family dwellings. More density, using the infrastructure we have more efficiently. These things are really important. And when you talk about the YIMBY movement, that's a lot of what they're talking about. Changing zoning rules, say in a lot of California cities, to allow that mother-in-law apartment, to allow that small addition with its own entrance so it can be an accessory apartment. Just little changes like that could do a lot to help us use our infrastructure more efficiently. It does, you don't need to add more streets. You don't have to go out in the, in the deserts or the prairies and rip up the environment. You just use what we have more efficiently. Overall, I just thought that was a really great conversation and great to be back, as we said, doing this in person. We want to thank the uh, Manhattan Institute, where both Ed Glazer and I are senior fellows. I'm very proud of that. And we want to thank Aaron Ricks for manning the recording instruments for this podcast. And our producer, we always want to thank Miranda Schaefer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.